Our scripture reading this morning is Mark 12, 18 through 27. Mark 12, 18. And the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, is, not th- is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Anna. Well, good morning again. We are in the final week of Jesus' ministry and life before the crucifixion in the Gospel of Mark. If you're visiting with us this morning or just joining us today, we've been in this series of the Gospel of Mark over this past year going through Mark's fast-paced uh, action-packed gospel, uh, where Jesus is even is portrayed as more of a doer even than a teacher. All kinds of action and stuff going on. The first part of his gospel, Mark's, we've been answering the question, who is Jesus in the first half? And it climaxed with Peter's words, if you remember, from the gospel. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Messiah. That was the first half of that, the gospel is the point of answering that. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. The one that God's people, the Jews, have been waiting for. All their history and were trusting would come and deliver them. But as we see in the second half of the gospel, it answers this question, what did Jesus come to do? So the first half, who is he? The second half is, what did he come to do? He did come to deliver them, yes, but it wasn't from as we're seeing more and more as we are working our way through this gospel, it wasn't from their Roman occupying enemy that was there. It was to deliver them from sin and death. Sin and death. Even bigger, greater problems than they realized they had and greater need. And one we know of as well due to our culture and maybe your own individuals, you think today, fear of death. Fear of death. It's a big one. Still below public speaking, but it's a big one. Our culture's fear. What do you think happens after death? What do you think happens? 
deeply embedded in the human heart is the desire, I think, to live forever. It is there. But not everyone believes we do, and many fear death, we know, or question what, what happens after we die. Well, this Sunday, Jesus, he challenges the religious skeptics of his day, and by doing so, he's going to remind us of our, of our, of our cer- certain things, actually, about life, certain things about death and the end times and the resurrection. The resurrection that we sang about this morning, that we spoke together and affirmed, and the hope that comes from the power and faithfulness of God to actually make that happen, to actually make that happen. Remember, we're in the middle of five confrontations, five confrontations between Jesus and some enemies in the temple, remember. We're right in the middle of those. Uh, Tuesday of the Passion Week is when these all take place. And this morning, we're going to look at the conundrum or the confrontation. We're going to look at Jesus' approach and then his answer. Uh, I was reading in a commentary this week where somebody said, uh, you know, pastors and teachers say, if, you know, if you want to build a really big crowd on a Sunday morning, teach either on sex or the end times. What if a passage has both? That's what we have today. <laughs> we have both today. We get both. So I'm glad you're here to talk about sex or marriage, we could say, and the end times, because that's what this passage is all about. Well, that's the conundrum that the Sadducees bring to Jesus. Here it is, the conundrum of sex and marriage in heaven. It's a problem, and they want to know an answer. So they bring this conundrum to Jesus. They want to know what's going to happen. What's going to happen in the afterlife, Jesus, with marriage, with family, and sex? Do they exist, Jesus? Do they exist? And if so, how, how, how do you deal with this one, Jesus? You know, they're all wanting to stump him, group after group as they come. The Sadducees are no different. They're a small sect. They're a pretty small group at this time in Israel. Uh, a, a small sect of families who were wealthy. They were kind of politically elite, you might say. They had a lot of influence in the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, and, and, and they were sympathetic to Rome. So they were uh, sympathetic to their occupiers, politically involved, elite, wealthy people. Small group, though. And a big issue for the Sadducees is they're too earthly, we're going to see. The Sadducees are too earthly. This group called the Sadducees come to Jesus to challenge him. And they lay out this elaborate, really, if, when you heard Anna reading, it's, it's kind of absurd, uh, intentionally, this, this conundrum about marriage in the afterlife. It's a story of a woman. A story of a woman whose husband dies, and uh, he has seven brothers who, one after the other, marry her. Will that happen today? Yeah, probably not. Didn't probably seven happen in their time either. But uh, it's this story, and they're referring to something we talked about, if you remember, uh, when we were in the book of Ruth, actually, with Ruth and Boaz, where Boaz marries Ruth after her husband dies because he's the closest family member. He becomes the kinsman redeemer. I don't know if you remember that. It was something called the leveret marriage at this time. It just basically meant brother-in-law. That at this time in in, uh, the culture, it was the duty of the brother to marry the widow of his brother to protect her, to preserve the family name and property. It was a different time. It didn't always happen, but it was 
in God's law, and it actually existed even before then. So they tell this story of a woman who has uh, seven husbands, all brothers that die. The conundrum. And then she passes away too. What happens, Jesus? In the resurrection life, who will she be married to? Who's she going to be with? Look at verse 23. They say to him, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. There's the, the, the trick. There's the conundrum. There's they're trying to trap Jesus up. What will happen in the afterlife? Who will she be with? They were too earthy in one sense. In their mind, heaven was just a, a little bit better version of earth. So, of course, monogamous marriage will be there too, and you can't be married to seven people in heaven, Jesus. So, come on, Jesus. The resurrection is absurd, Jesus. But we at times can do the same things. As we think of heaven as just a slightly better version of earth, a slightly improved version of what we see here and now, whether that's about our relationships or our body or the things we see, we can do the same thing. I know my wife and I have discussed this passage and, and look at each other and, wait a minute, we, we won't be married in heaven? What does that mean? We're married here. God loves marriage. He created it. We won't be married in heaven? We can be pretty earthy as we think about heaven and it challenges us with things we have in the here and now. Well, another thing, we also let pop culture, don't we, inform what heaven will be like. Did you know we will all just not be sitting on clouds all day playing harps like this guy? We do. Popular culture has spoken all kinds of things about heaven to us, whether it's the cartoons growing up, whether it's Elmer Fudd, or I've seen a couple Simpsons episodes, I think, where Homer's at the gates of heaven. I don't know if he made it or not, but um, we let popular culture, it does, doesn't it? It forms our opinion and thoughts on heaven too. So what earthly images is the question to ask? What earthly images for you have maybe shaped a bit too much of what heaven will be like? Well, in fact, the Sadducees, they had the same issue, and they were so earthy that they actually denied the heavenly. Did you catch that in the, in the text we read? The Sadducees are too earthly, and they deny the heavenly. They're so earthbound that they deny it. Not so for most people, though. Recent surveys of, of just average people point to somewhere 80% to or above that believe in some life after death. Some life after death. But this morning, the Sadducees, they are of the 20% who do not. They do not believe in a life after death. They believed in something called maybe annihilation of the soul. You die, you're gone, that's it. There's no uh, life after death. There's no reward or punishment for things you do on earth. That's it. Acts 23 lets us know that. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, as they did in our passage, nor angels, nor spirit. You're just body. You know, they were trying to say as they interacted with Jesus, look, Jesus, the idea of resurrection of bodies to heaven, that's absurd. That's absurd, Jesus. I mean, look at all the problems it will cause. What do you do with marriage, Jesus? It's kind of what they're telling him, kind of what they're saying to him. You know, God, Jesus, God is too smart for that. And add to that, the Sadducees, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. You might call the Torah. 
uh, Moses' books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all that was authoritative to them, and they couldn't find the resurrection there, so it doesn't exist, Jesus. But at this point in Mark, Jesus himself has already spoken three times about his own resurrection. He's already brought it up three times, at least it's recorded, about his resurrection. And so ultimately, Jesus says to them twice in this passage, pretty clear, didn't he? You're wrong. You're wrong. And so what's happened to them? They're left with this absurd conundrum without hope. They're left without hope. They're left with their problem. And you know what happens to them? Their group disappears from history in a matter of not much longer after Jesus' life. They disappear and they're not really heard from again in history. Jesus says to them twice in verse 24, you're wrong. And then in verse 27, he says, you're quite wrong. It says, if he, he said to them, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you're dead wrong. That's what he's saying. He says it twice really firmly and emphatically to them. So how does he approach the conundrum? How does Jesus approach the problem? Because that's what matters for us today. That's what matters for you and your life and your future, and as you think about your own death, as you think about those that have gone before you, that's what matters for you and I today, how Jesus approaches it. Let's look at that. Jesus approaches the conundrum with promise and power, we're going to call it today. He approaches it with promise and power. Pick it up in verse 24. Jesus said to them, is it not is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. He comes right back to him. You're wrong because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. He says to them, you don't know your Bible. He comes right to them and says, you're wrong because you don't know your Bible. He traces their error back to the fact of not knowing their Bible. And these are supposed to be some of not only the politically elite, but the theologically elite too. And he comes to him and he says, you don't know your Bible. Almost every theological error. We heard of Apostles' Creed today. Those were all written to refute error in the church. And that's why we still bring them forward because they, we, we, we're, we're not so smart and wise that we won't come up with the same errors they did hundreds of years ago. We do. But almost any theological error can be pointed to these two things that we're going to talk about. These two arguments that Jesus is going to use. Almost any one. And the first one is this, the promise of the text. The promise of the word of God. The promise of the text. Jesus goes right to the promises of Scripture to address their ignorance. He goes right to the text. And in fact, though, as you look at him, he's so gracious and kind with them that he goes to only the portion that they believe is authoritative, and that is the Word of God. He's so gracious and kind, he goes to that, uh, what we call it there, the Torah, the first five, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. He quotes from Exodus 3.6. It's a passage maybe you've heard before or familiar with. It's when God appeared in a burning bush to Moses. Look at verse 26 and 27 with me. We'll go back to 25. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? 
In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. So what are some takeaways for us from Jesus' challenge? He goes to the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Here's the first one. Jesus validates the Old Testament for us. Jesus believed the Old Testament was the word of God. He believed even in his coming and death and resurrection, a new era, that the Old Testament still mattered and there was still value to it because it's the word of God. There are some today in the church who are saying we should do away with the Old Testament, that we should unchain ourselves from it and leave it behind in the dustbin of history. That is a disastrous idea for the church. We would lose so much richness about knowing who God is. And Jesus believes the same because he goes right to it. He goes right to it. Because to misunderstand the text, to misunderstand the word of God, the revealed word in your life is to misunderstand God himself. And when you misunderstand God, as Jesus said to them, he said, you're, you're quite wrong. You're quite wrong. And he didn't shy away from saying that to them. His logic is clear that Jesus even thinks that the word of God is inspired and so inspired and so valuable, it's okay to make an argument even from the tense of one verb. Past, present, future, kind of the idea. Jesus thinks it's valuable even to make an argument from the tense of one verb of one verse. That's how valuable he thinks the word of God is and how true and pure it is. He says to them, God said, I am, there's the verb, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob after they're dead. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was, the past tense, but I am, implying that he still is their God, and therefore they must be living, and therefore the resurrection is a reality. You and I can be absolutely deceived in so many areas, and easier than we think, if the word of God is not your primary guide for God and life. That's a takeaway for us from Jesus here. A big takeaway. But do you look at the word that way? Do you look at this book that way? I mean, it's the reason we sing it. It's the reason we pray it. It's the reason we preach it. It's the reason we all say it together out loud is because Jesus looks at us and says, this is it. This is how you know. This is how you chart a course in life. This is how you avoid being deceived. He said, you're quite wrong. The word says, I am. That's all he had to say. I am, not I was. But we can become skilled as Christians. We can. At knowing how to be a Bible person in the appropriate setting. We can do that. We know we come to Sunday morning. This is what we do. We open the Word of God. We do it. But we can step out of that Sunday morning into our regular life, and it's not quite present, but we have a life group midweek. We step into that or another Bible study, and we know in those moments as we go into them, we become a Bible person. We just know that. That's what we do as a church. 
and become in those places kind of a word-centered people there. But to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means everything. Every decision, every view and idea is to be brought captive to Christ and his word. Everything. Do you want to know if you value the word? Is it part of the everyday fabric of your life? Not just Sunday, not just life group, not just Tuesday, a Bible study for men and women. Is it part of the fabric, the everyday fabric of your life? I thought we'd have a little fun with this by looking at some of the ways, even as Christians, some of our phrases, cliches, to see even how easy it can be for people of the word to be misled by partial truths even. All phrases coming up on the screen you've heard or used yourself. And, and I will say, when we use these, most of the intent is really good and really gracious and really wanting to be helpful. Here's a few. Uh, when God closes a door, he opens a window. Another one, you're never more safe than when you're in God's will. Another one, let go and let God. And as I read these, I have heard and, and used them myself, so I'm right in this camp with you. Uh, here's another one, God will not give you more than you can handle. Here's another one, God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard any of those phrases before? Show hands, anybody? Okay, oh, the whole room, actually. <laughs> now, as I said, each of these one-liners contain, they all contain a bit of truth. And I know as we've used them, all of us, that we've used, we've used them to try to simplify big truths and ideas and out of great concern. And I know the heart behind these phrases is good and caring. The problem is that none of them are actually in the Bible. And in fact, the main idea behind most of them is actually unbiblical. I mean, we can't unpack all of them. Let's just take two real quick. We can't do all of them today. Here's two of them, though. How about the first one? When God closes a door, he opens a window. Now, if by this we mean that God can do anything and that sometimes he redirects our course uh, and even changes our direction and, and doesn't abandon us, that's, that is all true. But if God closes a door, it doesn't necessarily mean he will open a window. He may actually want you to realize that this is an absolutely wrong direction. Turn around, right, when he closes the door. Like he did in Acts 16. It says it there. He kept Paul and Timothy out of Asia. He closed the door. They didn't look for a window. And he may not open uh, a window when he closes the door because it might be the right thing that he wants you to actually break down a wall. Think about that. Or a giant. We'll come back to that. How many missionaries trying to go to closed countries would have given up if they believed this phrase? Or what would little David have done in the face of Goliath? Someone walked up to him and said, I know he's big, bigger than a door actually, but God will open a window for you. No, 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 it looked absolutely impossible. It was a wall he was up against. It was a wall he was up against. Some of God's greatest victories have come where there's not even a keyhole to look through. Some of his greatest victories. Do you see how we can take something that's partially and it can impact your entire view of the world? Here's another one. God will not give you more than you can handle. Now, the phrase is meant to encourage us. Absolutely. In our culture of kind of be anything you want to you be and it, it, life won't get too hard. 
God won't give you more than you can take. The problem is, in all honesty, he will give you more than you can handle. And he does that many times over a life. And he'll do it so you have to trust in him rather than yourself and rely on him. And it's actually even loving when he does it. It doesn't feel like it in the middle of it, does it? But it's actually loving when he does it because it's finally when you get to the end of yourself and you go, I can't do anything here. I can't do anything. He will give you more than you can handle, actually. But not more than he can handle. That's the point. The Sadducees didn't know their Bible, and it cost them dearly. Ideas have consequences. And ideas about God and the afterlife have very big consequences for us. Jesus believed there was value in the word down to the tense of a verb. So what will it cost you? Where will you be or have you been deceived or misled to believe something false about God or to shrink him down in power and might because you didn't know his word? which is the second error that causes false views of God. The first one was not knowing what he says about himself and his word. The second one is about his power. The promises of the text point to the ability of his power. That's why God point, Jesus pointed back to the word because the God of that word is really powerful. He's powerful enough to speak the world into existence. If he can make man from dust and still be the God of three men who have already passed away, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they're dead. Can he not resurrect the dead? He spoke the world into existence. He made a man from dust. Can he not also bring us back from dust? He also made a covenant with those men, these people, God's people, that he would be their God forever. I will be your God forever. Even after you die, I am the God of, he said then isn't the basis for afterlife, it's based in his power then, his covenant, his agreement with us, God's commitment or his power of commitment and his commitment to his power. I love how uh, Tim Keller said it. Doesn't hang on us then. Notice Jesus doesn't hang the hope of life after death, like the Greeks did, on the idea of an immortal part of us. Rather, he rests it in the commitment of God to us. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. This is a very powerful argument for life after death. We have a God who cannot at our death scrap that which is precious to him. Think about that. The reality of the resurrection is not based on the fact that just a piece of you happens to be eternal. It's based on the fact that God's eternally committed to you and he's powerful enough to keep you in his hand forever. That's what it's based upon. Thank God for that. His commitment to you. Not going to scrap it at the end. He's absolutely committed. He's not going to scrap those he died for. And for those who come into covenant with him now through faith, you won't be thrown on the dustbin and the dust pile of history. So we put them all together, it looks like this. The promises of the text point to the ability of his power to resurrect the dead. That's what Jesus is doing. Verse 27, he says it to them. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
you are quite wrong. They didn't know the scripture or the power of God to raise the dead. What about you? Do you know that? Do you know the relationship and the truth that the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob even had with God through Christ? Then you know what? If you do, expect a resurrection. Expect a resurrection if you know it. Do you have a relationship with him that, that is so real and alive and powered by God's power and Holy Spirit that you know is going to never end? Then expect a resurrection. Expect it. It's coming. But what will it look like? What is it going to look like? It's a weird thought, isn't it? It's, it is, we just, uh, it's, it's good to say these things. There's a lot of bizarre stuff in the Bible. It's just good to say that. I mean, if, if, if God is who he is and who he says he is, we should expect that. He's God. There's a lot of stuff in there. We're like, what is that going to be like? What is it going to be like to die, be buried, and then come out of the ground? What? Or who are alive when he comes back and transformed in real time from life to life? What would that look like? Well, here's our final. The resurrected state will have both continuity and big differences. So continuity, some things will be the same, but also really big differences too. So we skipped over verse 25. I don't know if you caught that. Not because it's just too tough or too wacky or too hard to describe, but we just, I just wanted to go back to it to end with today, where Jesus describes the afterlife and our resurrection from the dead. If you got your text, look down at me, verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, I would guess if we were to just have a conversation and we just started talking to each other in here and asked what about the afterlife, about the resurrection, I would guess that we would have some, there'd be some confusion in here. Probably different answers, different ideas, different timelines for sure uh, when these things will happen. Um, but I, I'm sure, in, even in a room like ours, what will heaven be like? Now, on the one hand, the Bible doesn't give us a lot, actually. And really, how do you describe the eternal for finite humans? How do you describe the heavenly in really earthly terms that we could go, oh, I totally get it. That's not actually probably really possible even. But we also need to talk about this. I have known, I've had this conversation with my wife and know uh, uh, even some happy couples who have said, if there's no marriage in heaven, I don't want to go. I may have seen some eye rolling on that one. <laughs> I don't want to go. But also because we fear death too. We have to talk about this. Because I know there's places and times when we fear death. You know what that's like. You're just about to fall to sleep. Just about to doze off in that twilight state. And all of a sudden, why sometimes then? This little anxious thought comes in. This, this, this anxious thought about soul detaching from body. You ever had that moment where you're just like, what is that going to be like? And it, it causes you almost a little angst, maybe a little fear even. It invades that moment when you're just about to fall asleep. Maybe I'm only talking about me, but I've had that. 
So in that moment, it tends to hit me. What will that be like? We need this. We have to talk about this. So let's do it. Let's, let's quickly get some hopeful takeaways from this, this, verse, uh, this verse that uh, Jesus said to these men. Here's the first one. We will be both real body and soul in heaven. We will be both real body and soul in heaven. When Jesus said he was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he said he was the God of their whole person, all of who they are. We're both, and aren't we both, we are both body and soul, aren't we? We are that. We have a physical body. We know that passes away, and yet we believe a soul lives on. And we will have a real body at the resurrection. Now, the dead don't yet. They're in a, a state without that yet until the resurrection. But we will. A new heaven and earth will be physical. So will your body. It's not just some only spiritual state where we float around like the picture on clouds and we're just material, uh, immaterial spirit. No, a new heaven and earth is described in a very real physical way. You'll have a real new body again. What's that? Size three. <laughs> Whatever you want, Pam. <laughs> oh, how do I recover from that? <laughs> if you're listening online, it's okay to laugh. <laughs> A real body. You're right. It will have size and space to it. It will have size and space to it. You will have a real body. Raised and perishable, the scripture said. It also means then, if that's the case, Christians, we should care about the physical world. Sometimes we've been so spiritual and thought that only the spirit matters that we sometimes have cared less about the physical than we should. Whether it's people, whether it's poverty, whether it's even environment at times, we've got to be good stewards. The, the, the physical matters. The physical matters. It also means what we do with our bodies matters too. I love this quote from Tish Warren Harrison's her name from her book. She said, when we use our bodies to rebel against God or to worship the false gods of sex, of youth, or personal autonomy, we're not simply breaking an archaic uh, and arbitrary commandment or rule. We're using a sacred object. In fact, the most sacred object on earth in a way that denigrates its beautiful and high purpose. Your body is good. God gave it to you. Yes, is it changing? Yes, does it break down? Yes, does it ultimately die? Yes, but it's still good. And it will be raised. So what you do with it now matters. They're not just arbitrary rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's God's gift to you. We have too low a view of the body in the church. We do. Thinking too little of the fact that a real resurrected body means there's consequences now. Jesus died, think about it, not just to resurrect your soul, but your body too. To resurrect your body too. So what you do with it now matters and has real consequences. And that body will have continuity. It'll have continuity. Uh, you'll be recognized. 
Jesus was recognized on earth. We'll know one another. In some way, we'll look the same. But it'll also be different. You'll be your best. You'll be you, but your best you. You'll be you, but your best you. A lot of people are looking for their best life right now. Right now. A lot of people. Life is great. Yes. And God wants us to glorify him and the joy we experience through this world. It's good too. He made it. But what's coming will be no comparison. No comparison. You'll still be you. As I said, you'll be recognizable. But oh, you'll be the best version of you. You'll be you, but you'll be the best version of you. Abraham still keeps everything that makes him Abraham. He's called Abraham in the afterlife. But eternity, he'll be an Abraham like no other. The way God always intended him to be. You've seen that movie. Uh, it was the movie Hook, right? Uh, it was with Robin Williams. He played an older Peter Pan. Do you remember that movie? And he went back to visit the kids again. He'd grown up, and he went back there and to visit them and to see them, and they're like, you're not you. You're not Peter. You can't be Peter. He changed. He'd aged. Uh, you know, all those things that happened to him. And they go up to him, and they're kind of, remember, they're looking at his face. And they're squeezing it and pushing it, going like, I don't know, like moving it. He's just kind of rubber, you know, as Robin Williams' face kind of was. Uh, they're just moving it all around until finally they go, they squeeze it back. They kind of give him a facelift. And they go, there you are, Peter. There you are. We have moments like that on earth with your spouse, with a friend, where you get little glimpses of, oh, that's who you're going to be in eternity. That's who you're going to be. There's your true you. There you are, Peter. We have those moments, don't you? you? Where you see your spouse, your friend, your kids respond, and oh, that's how God would want them to respond. And you see it. There you are. That's who the true you is. That's who you're going to be in eternity. The best you you've ever been. We get glimpses of it in the here and now. You will be, though, your best you there always, not just glimpses, always. Well, here's another one. There will not be less love than marital love, but more. We have to talk about this. There will not be less love than marital love, but more. I know Jesus' words are troubling for some when he says you won't be married to your spouses in heaven. We'll be like angels, he says, which I think he, by that he means we won't marry, we won't procreate. Not that we'll all have wings all of a sudden. But just because there's no marriage in heaven does not mean a reduction in love in heaven. We have to hear that. And of course, I believe we will know we were married on earth, and that will mean there's a greater intimacy with that person in, in eternity right from the start. But just because there's no marriage in heaven doesn't mean there's less love in heaven. In fact, the love of heaven will be better. It'll be so much better. So much better. Uh, George MacDonald, he was a writer. He wrote fairy tales to kind of take the spiritual world and make us understand it, said this, the new shall then be dear as the old, the old spouse, for the same reason that it reveals the old love. And in the changes, which, which must take place when the mortal puts on immortality, 
Shall we not feel that the nobler our friends are, the more they are themselves? That the more the idea of each is carried on in the perfection of beauty, the more like they are to what we thought them in our most exalted moods. There's that, there you are, Peter, to that which we saw in them in the rarest moments of that profound communion. In other words, you thought you loved your spouse and friends on earth, just wait. You thought you experienced true love on earth, just wait. Just wait. You'll never want them to go back to what they were or your, you to go back as a couple to what you were. You'll never even, you'll never even have a thought about that because what on the, is on the other side will be that much greater. Romans 6 says it for us. Now, if we've, we've died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. You'll see it coming up on the screen. Oh, did I skip one? I did. Yeah, this is the final one. There will be no more death. It'll last forever. So the good thing that we have with our spouses that we'll see that's even better in heaven, it'll last forever because there will be no more death. The death of death has taken place in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We will say, death, where is your sting? Now let's see it in Romans 6. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Which means you'll never die again too. We will pass into eternity. We will all die once. But if you have Christ... You're already living for eternity now. You're already, in some sense, in the eternal state. You will be there. You, your body will resurrect again, and then it will never die again. No pain, no sorrow, no loss, no death, no twinge in the knee, right? No heart problems, no high cholesterol, maybe even size three. I don't know. But you'll never die again. You won't. And when we get there, you know it's the best thing and the final thing? Jesus will be there. Jesus will be there too. And he'll have a body as well. You think about that? You can actually look into the eyes of God. He'll have a body too. And he'll be there as well. And, and, and that's what the table shows us today. That's what the table shows us. That real flesh and blood died and real flesh rose again from the, the grave. We proclaim his death, his burial, but also his resurrection in this table. But because without resurrection, there's no gospel. There's no gospel without re resurrection. And Paul says it. If there's no resurrection, my preaching is futile. You're still in your sins. And we should be pitied more than anybody. But you know what? Jesus Christ did raise from the dead. And hundreds of people saw him after he rose from the dead. And many died for that sight. And billions of lives have been transformed because of it. There's no, oh, there's no proof of the resurrection. We're sitting here. You're here today. There's amazing proof of the resurrection. And thank God it is because without it, there's no gospel. Let's take a couple moments. Ponder the resurrection. Ponder what's coming. Take it as a time of confession. Paul says, and, and the Lord says, to examine your heart, to confess sin before we come to this table as believers. In doing so is good. To not do so, sometimes Paul even says, can occur judgment on upon ourselves. Take it as a time to confess, repent, and receive the gospel again.
And if you haven't trusted Christ yet today, I want to encourage you, let these elements pass by you today. Jesus calls this a big family meal. And if you haven't quite jumped into that family yet, he says it doesn't quite make sense for you to take of that same meal. But I ask you, consider it, ponder it in this time too, that what Christ did on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection is the key to life. The key to death, the key to life. Let's take some quiet time as our worship team comes forward and our servers as well.